Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Today, we're here with Robert Califf, who will be reflecting on the keynote address that he gave for the recent NIH collaboratory workshop entitled Advances at the Intersection of Digital Health, Electronic Health Records, and Pragmatic Clinical Trials. Um, Rob, welcome to the, the collaboratory podcast. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Leslie. Good to, good to be here. So you uh, posed a question um, in your talk that was, can the COVID-19 crisis actually lead to reformation of evidence generation and of that entire ecosystem? Can you kind of refresh us as to where, where we were heading into this, this crisis? Well, it, as you well know, uh, having just finished a term uh, leading the DCRI, our evidence generation system uh, had had a lot of problems before we came into the crisis. Of course, you know, everything should be related to um, history. And there's no doubt that we've learned a lot about how to do the right studies, generate the evidence and disseminate it. But we were facing a situation already where the amount of new technology and the complexity of old technology was far outstripping our ability to do the right studies to generate the evidence we needed. And not only uh, were we facing a situation where, for example, less than 10% of major guideline-based decisions in cardiology were not based on high-quality evidence, but we were also dealing with an escalation of cost that was making it impossible, even if we knew the right things to do and had willing people using the methods that were currently in place and the systems that were in place for uh, everything ranging from regulation to payment um, to how the studies were done, there was just no way we were going to be able to keep up and provide uh, patients or clinicians with the evidence they needed uh, to make good decisions. So we were already facing a bit of a crisis before the new crisis hit. Yeah, that's that's true. So you you described um, almost a fork in the road that we face um, now that we are in the middle of this pandemic. Um, talk a little bit, if you will, about what kind of what the the paths are that we can go down as a result of this. What are those options? Well, it's always useful, I think, to simplify um, when we talk about choices, realizing that in reality there is a huge middle ground and many options along the way. But basically, when uh, COVID-19 hit, uh, people responded magnificently. And so everyone from investigators to patient volunteers to administrators, lawyers, everyone pitched in and uh, almost every rule was sort of put in abeyance uh, with the general uh, dictum that common sense should prevail, given the fact that we were facing the most serious health threat uh, of our lifetimes. And now uh, we saw how many studies could get started in a remarkably short time. 
um, many of them very well designed and taking advantage particularly of digital technologies that are not new. We've talked about them for a while, but there are many reasons why they just weren't being adopted at the rate they could have been. And so we're at a, going to be at a fork in the road as we get more into the chronic phase of the pandemic. I wish I could say after the pandemic, but I don't think the uh, models are showing that we're going to be out of this for a while. But as we move into more the chronic phase, we can either go back to the way it was or we can take advantage of what we've learned along the way and perhaps really rev up the system, not just for COVID-19, but for all the other needs that people have for answers to questions to guide their healthcare decisions. Rob, you uh, you mentioned several uh, several aspects of, of clinical research that have really accelerated um, over the last over the last few months. Um, maybe we could touch on on some of those individually. What have you seen from a from a regulatory uh, context, and and how has how has that changed? Do you have a unique perspective given the the time you spent um, as commissioner of FDA? I think the FDA responded magnificently on um, the research side of the equation and basically put out a set of guidances that instructed the community that um, something called the COVID flag could be used, which uh, many of us have uh, come to like quite a bit. And the idea here is that business as usual was not going to work didn't matter whether you were starting up a new study related to COVID or you had a new study planned in some other disease or you had an ongoing trial in another disease, you simply couldn't see people back for the usual study visits. And for the COVID-related trials, there was a uh, not just an urgency, but really an emergency. And so the idea is um, think through uh, what you need to do using quality by design, get rid of all the things that would either make it impossible to do the research or would delay COVID-related research. But um, using quality by design, stick to the principles that lead to um, good evidence generation. And then um, keep records of why you made the decisions that you made so they're available um, when the uh, the dust settles and everything can be put back together. So I think Um, In that sense, uh, I think we've learned that we can design more efficient studies that can start more rapidly and can focus on uh, the outcomes that matter. There also is going to be like a whole new area of analysis related to competing risks because um, in many cases the outcomes or endpoints that were planned can't be measured the way they had planned. You know, the example that I thought was most uh, striking to me was in pulmonary fibrosis, where patients literally can't get near a clinic because any COVID infection would be lethal, most likely. Uh, The patient community and the research community got together and figured out how to measure things at home that mattered. But, you know, regulation is not just a matter of FDA. There are many other regulators in the system, including all of our local institutions and um, it was has been remarkable how many um, sort of institutional bureaucracies have responded uh, very well to move things along, to get studies underway, and to oversee them. 
you noted too the uh, real rise, the ne the necessary rise in the use of digital technologies, um, so that we can actually continue research during this period. What have What have you seen uh, that that uh, you gives you maybe hope about how how quickly we can uh, answer key questions? Well, there's a great parallel here between the clinical world and the research world. Um, it is not exactly a great revelation that digital technology would enable um, a visit to occur without being there in person. We, actually, I guess the third analogy is our families. With Mother's Day yesterday, um, I think uh, many of us had coast-to-coast uh, uh, Zoom broadcasts or whatever technology was being used to bring uh, families together. And while it's not exactly the same as an in-person visit, there are actually a number of advantages that begin to come out that you can really um, see. You know, for example, um, I think in all three situations that we talk about clinical research and personal life, you, uh, I think people are actually contacting each other more often. Um, in the clinical world, for example, in an addiction program that I'm involved in, um, the, the uh, number of times people miss visits has precipitously dropped. In other words, if all it takes is a phone call um, with um, a visual with a phone call, um, people rarely miss their visits, whereas if they have to get in the car and drive to the clinic, um, there's a much higher chance they're going to miss it. For chronic disease, you can follow people for shorter, um, shorter uh, individual visits, but you can have many more to follow their trajectory. And I think many clinical trials have been designed that way so that um, the follow-up and uh, visits that would have been scheduled in person at greater expense and a lot of uh, headache getting back and forth to a clinic uh, can now be done virtually. I'd also add, um, I mean, one area that has really been amazing to watch is consent in situations of sick patients with uh, COVID, even inside the hospital, um, virtual uh, consent is being uh, obtained to reduce the exposure of personnel um, to really sick people for some of the uh, very important research being done uh, for people who are critically ill with COVID. So um, I think we now have the groundwork for what we all knew was possible. And it was just being held up either because of the way things were paid for or the interpretation of uh, regulation. And I think we can look forward to a much more efficient hybrid system. You know, electronic health records is, has been a, a topic of discussion, certainly between the two of us for several years now. What what have you uh, you know what have you seen um, in terms of data access, health record access um, over the last several months that that again gives you um, either encouragement or makes you feel slightly discouraged? <laughs> well. I think the willingness to use electronic health records for um, research data, you know, is obviously much more pressing. And so people are willing to do it. And I might turn the table a little bit on you, Leslie, here, since you're the expert on this. But it, you know, keeps reminding me that while we have figured out how to curate 
EHRs to common data models and sort of a manual process, we still don't really have a fluid system of sharing the data and automating this. So it's um, just ready to go like it really should be. I mean, you would think with the amount of money that we spent on electronic health records and people's willingness to share their information, particularly in this situation, that it, um, at some point, you know, it would never be as simple as just pressing a button, but um, it ought to be easier yet than it is. I will note that, um, you know, I was just looking this morning at a report from the UK of uh, a symptom tracker in uh, 2.3 million people. Gives you pretty good power to look at um, the symptoms that were predicting uh, a COVID infection. And when we think about a country like the U.S. with 300 million people, all with electronic health records, I guess almost 350 million now, um, there's really almost no question you can think of where there wouldn't be adequate power to answer the question if we can just get these records um, organized and curated. So I'm, I'm, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit here, uh, Leslie. What? How do you see this? Yeah, I mean, like you, I would... Uh you've identified exactly what the, what the problem is. Um, and I, I see the same problem. The solution really, I think requires us all to think, um, differently about how we, how we bring data together in near real time ways. Um, you know, the, the, the approach of, of, um, building it block by block by block and, um, curating as we go, that that takes a lot of time and a lot of time that um, feels like right now we don't have. So I, I spend uh, some of my time thinking about how we how we can come at this from a completely different angle. Um, I haven't come up with the answer yet, but I'm pretty sure that the old way of doing it again, where we secure, you know, secure data and permissions and link data on a case-by-case basis, that is just not working at all. So maybe we better come back uh, in a few months and see if I've come up with anything better than uh, (laughs) than that. Now that you have all the spare time with Dr. Hernandez taking over the DCRI, I think uh, this would be a great place for you to spend your time. And obviously with my work now at Alphabet, it seems to me that part of the solution has to be the, autom- the use of automated algorithms with uh, machine learning to, um, you know, not get you 100% of the way there, but to take away so much of the human labor and focus the human labor on the places where it really makes a difference. And there'll be plenty of those because human interpretation, I think, is still going to be important. But, um, you know, a fundamental underlying issue that I'm thinking a lot about now, even since the Grand Rounds is this really um, complicated trade-off of our beliefs about um, the ethics of all this. Um, you know, what is, the, what is the right to privacy versus the right to health that is improved when information is shared? And, you know, this is not a question for me working for a tech company to answer. Now, this is a question for people in uh, universities and other parts of society to um, answer. But I do think uh, the crisis has um, 
really called uh, this issue into the forefront of people's thinking. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Rob, it's it's always uh, just a real treat to talk with you. Today's been been no exception to that. Um, as we as we wrap up, um, you know, what's what do you see as maybe the most most important thing or few things that those of us who um, are who work in this ecosystem can do to make sure that the progress that we've made in some areas not just continues but but accelerates over time. I really hope we'll look carefully at what we've learned from this experience and take the things that worked and insist that they be continued uh, with a focus on uh, generating high quality evidence at the lowest cost in the fastest way possible. That's what um, all of us would want for the medical problems that we're concerned about. We'd like to know the best thing to do, whether it's the use of a treatment or a better diagnostic test or even implementation of health services in a particular way. And so I think um, as we go through the crisis, and we're certainly not out of it yet, um, keeping records of what we've done and then reflecting and uh, implementing going forward. I do believe that the regulators, for example, will be uh, very interested in uh, doing that because so much has been learned. And I hope the academic medical centers will um, really take up the mantle and ally with the patient groups to um, bring forward the things that work during this crisis. Great. Well, thanks again uh, for a great conversation, Rob. It's, it's been uh, really good to have you join us on our podcast series. And for those who've uh, tuned in today, I invite you to join us for our next podcast as we continue to highlight fascinating and informative changes in the research world. Thanks again, Rob. Yvette, I really enjoy these grand rounds and I look forward to listening to the future speakers. Take care. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.